Thank you, praise team. Church, great, great singing today. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel in chapter 11, if you will. 1 Samuel in chapter 11. Great to see everybody here on this first Sunday of spring break. So glad that you are worshiping with us. Again, if you are visiting with us, maybe you haven't been here in a while, we're so glad to see you. And uh, do us a favor and fill out one of those visitor cards so we can connect with you. 1 Samuel chapter 11 today. As the baseball season is preparing to get away in just about two weeks, baseball fans everywhere are hoping that their team starts out fast, right? Like no baseball fan, no fan base wants their team to start out slowly and then have to play catch up all the year. And this is true in every single sport, right? You get so far below 500 and it's hard to come back. It's hard to Uh, to get back into contention, you want a fast start. The truth of the matter is, in every area of life, a hot start or a fast start is a good thing. If you have a new job, you want to start well. You want to uh, show your supervisors that you're up to the task, that you can do the job. Same with school, right? Doing well on those first exams, whether you're in, in primary school or secondary school or whether you're in college, it's important, right? You don't want to do poorly and then have to try to play catch up. If you do better from the beginning, it is an easier semester for you. Same is true when it comes to politics, right? Every time there's a new president elected, they always talk about the first 100 days in office. Like, what is that president going to accomplish in that first 100 days in office? Starting well is important. And yes, I understand it's not always how you start, but it's how you finish. However, starting well is a good thing, right? It's a good thing. Today, we're going to see the beginning of Saul's kingship. And we're going to see that he actually started quite well. You recall that he was previously uh, anointed in a private manner by Samuel as he was looking for the sheep and they came to the seer, they came to Samuel and Samuel anointed him and then he was publicly proclaimed as the king but then Samuel kind of goes off back to his, excuse me, Saul goes off to his hometown and he kind of goes back to the farm. Now we understand that this was a different scenario for Israel, they hadn't had a king, they had no royal past so maybe Saul didn't actually know what he was supposed to do. Well, he goes back to his hometown and he starts working in the fields. But things were about to get real for Saul as a tribe of Israel is faced with great opposition and the appeal is going to come to Saul for help. And we're going to see that Saul starts out quite well, that he's up to the challenge. So if you will, please stand with me as we read in 1 Samuel. We'll begin in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 25. And we'll read through verse 11 of chapter 11. So Saul has been publicly proclaimed. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. Chapter 11 and verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. 
But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we might send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so it shall be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah were 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp, in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day and those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Will you pray with me? Father, we're thankful for your word. And today our great desire is to hear from you. Our great desire as we look to 1 Samuel chapter 11 and that you would teach us, that you would teach us that the king brings salvation that the true king brings salvation. So we pray that you would open our ears and our eyes and our minds, that we would hear and that we would see and that we would perceive, we would understand who Jesus is and the hope that is found in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, it's important for us to remember as we get started here that Israel was not necessarily a unified people at this time. Each of the tribes of Israel was led by its own set of elders and there was no central government. We understand that there were some religious strings that were holding the people together. There was a tabernacle, at this point it was gone, but there was this tabernacle that was set up, the tent of meeting that was set up in Shiloh, but that had been destroyed. So these religious strings that were holding the people together were actually becoming more loose at this time. But something was about to bring them together. And it's in the context, in this context, that we learn of this king, Nahash the Ammonite, who went up and besieged the people of Jabesh Gilead. Now, just a few contextual matters as we begin. We've been reading about the Philistines, how the Philistines have been the enemies of the Israelites and how they were to the west of Israelites, right? Well, the Ammonites were to the east of the Israelites and they were kind of closing in as well. So there, was, there were enemies all around them at this point. The Ammonites were loosely related to the Israelites as descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. You remember uh, that when Lot escaped, uh, the area that God had cursed his daughters, uh, 
initiated an incestuous relation with him and their offspring then were called the Ammonites. They were against the Israelites. There was a lot of animosity between these two peoples for a long time. And this was just the most recent iteration of that. Extra biblical, extra biblical historical documents, including some manuscript evidence actually, include data about this king, King Nahash, saying that he was a feared leader who had been wrecking, wreaking havoc on this area for a long time. So he was feared by all the people. And you should know that this area, Jabesh Gilead, was located on the east side of the Jordan River. So this was actually in or right near Ammonite territory. So they were prime. They were a prime target for Nahash to continue his cruelty against God's people, against those who were living near him. They were disconnected from the other tribes, and again, they weren't a closely connected nation as it was. So with all of that, we need to know that God's people should expect trouble from God's enemies. God's people should expect trouble from God's enemies. Now, the Ammonites worshiped the gods Chemosh and Moloch, which involved human sacrifices and various other cruelties and immoralities. They did not fear the one true and living God, and their hearts were set against God's people. So when Nahash came against the people of Jabesh-Gilead, he was doing what was natural to him. He was doing what was in his heart to attack God, to attack God's people. He was acting out his hatred of righteousness and he was taking aim at the very people of God. And from what we read here, the people of God were terrified. I mean, they, they had heard all the rumors. They had seen evidence of this king and his cruelty. And, and they said, we, we want a treaty with you. Will you spare us? And of course, Nahash said, well, yes, I'll spare you. However, it's going to cost you all the right eyes of your people. Well, this didn't sound like a good plan either. So they go to him and they say, well, give us seven days of respite, right? Just give us these days. And, and we're going to send out messengers. We're going to see if anyone from our people are going to come and help us. They're going to come battle with us. Now, you might be thinking, well, why would this king allow that to happen? Why would Nahash say, yeah, I'm going to give you seven days to go collect an army to come fight me? Well, first of all, I think Nahash probably didn't believe that it was going to happen. He probably didn't think seven days was enough time. But secondly, Nahash was thinking uh, in his pride that he was invincible, that he was undefeatable. And he wanted to bring disgrace, as he said, he wanted to bring disgrace on all of Israel. So he probably thought, hey, you bring more people, my victory is bigger, and the disgrace upon your people is, is even bigger as well. So that's kind of what's going on in the background. He was so arrogant. Think about this. Enemies of God can be so arrogant that they will put themselves in danger because they think that they can bring greater shame upon the name of God and upon the people of God. And if this seems foreign to us, friends, it shouldn't. Because all around the world, war is being waged because of religious beliefs. Look to various African nations and look to the Middle East and see that God's people are targeted by God's enemies. And it, while it may not be a full-scale war that's being waged, there are battles and there are oppressions regularly, all because God's people hate God and hate 
All because God's enemies hate God and hate God's people, excuse me. So who knows, what's in store in the US? What's gonna come down the line for us? I mean, already God's people are being discriminated against in business, in politics, in academia, on college campuses. Oftentimes this comes in the way of the cancel culture or even in the name of equity and diversity. Religious liberty, a freedom guaranteed in the Constitution is clearly under fire in our day. But even beyond that, friends, the enemies of God are seeking to bring shame on believers and disgrace on the church. Just think about the headlines that you read at times. Headlines where you see uh, those who are, have name recognition, they're professed to be followers of God, but they have some moral failing. How much disgrace that brings upon the church, upon the people of God, even upon God himself in the eyes of others. And think about the enemy. The enemy is a master tempter. The enemies of God want the people of God to fail, and when they do, they rejoice because Christians will succumb to temptation. And you think about the headlines that we read almost daily, how the media will portray faithful Christian teaching as bigoted and rile up the masses. Friends, because of the world that we live in, we need to be prepared. We should expect trouble and we must seek God. We must draw near to him and we must stay close to the spirit. Spiritual warfare is a reality. It's an undeniable reality. The evil one would love nothing more than for us to believe, uh, to disbelieve God and to doubt his promises. And don't think, friends, that you're strong enough to stand up to the temptations of this world in your own power or on your own. Every day, people fall to sin thinking that they are strong enough. Every day. Think about it in the physical realm. It goes something like this. Situation, like if you're my age and older, okay? If you're not my age and older, you will be one day. Situations that would have been easy 10 to 15 years ago aren't easy anymore. The other day I, had to, I was climbing up here to turn off the, the water in the baptistry and I got up there and I thought, how am I gonna get down? <laughs> right? Like, you know, think, like trees we used to climb or jump out of or walls or fences we used to climb over. That's not as easy anymore. Just when we think we got it, what happens? We pull something, we break something, we hurt something or we tear something. If you're over 40, you can relate to this, right? And if you can't yet, you will one day. So what do we do? Well, let's bring this back to the spiritual realm. Those who are devoted to the true king draw near to God daily. Right, because we're gonna face difficulties, we need to draw near to God daily. We need to humble ourselves. We need to plead for grace. We need to daily meditate on truth to combat the world's lies. We need to daily approach the throne of grace so that we might receive God's grace and God's help in our times of need. Well, yes, we should expect troubles, but second, God's people should follow the Spirit when facing difficulties. God's people should follow the Spirit when facing difficulties. So. The people of Jabesh Gilead, they say to King Nahash, the Ammonites, give us seven days of respite and we're gonna go and we're gonna send out messengers and we're gonna try to see if we can get some help. 
So the initial place, they go all over, but the focus here in 1 Samuel 11 is on they go to Gibeah of Saul, right? So this is Saul's hometown. They go there to Gibeah and they tell everyone what's going on. But notice that Saul's not there at that point. So they tell everyone what's going on and everyone's weeping and crying. And if it was you, don't you think you would want Saul to be there before you spill all the beans of what's happening? I mean, he's the king. It makes me wonder how... How, how, it was, how common it will be, commonly it was known that Saul was actually the king at this point. Remember, this was a disconnected nation. And yes, there was proclamations made, but, but maybe the amount of time had passed and the people are there. And Well, then Saul does come. He comes in from the field. He was working the fields with the oxen and the plow. And, and he says, what's going on? Why is everyone crying like this? Why is everyone weeping? And so they tell Saul. And at that moment, Saul, the text tells us, is filled with the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God rushes upon him. Now, if you consider that term, it rushes upon him, we think back to the book of Judges, and we might think of other judges like Othniel or Samuel, or excuse me, Samson, when uh, the enemies had come against God's people and the Spirit of God said to rush upon this judge, rush upon this deliverer, strengthening this deliverer to go rescue the people from the enemy. Well, that is what is taking place here. Saul is moved with righteous indignation. And he takes his yoke of oxen and he cuts them up and he sends them throughout the land and he threatens to all the people that if you won't come to help, if you won't come after me, by the way, notice that he says Samuel as well. I still think he's trying to find his footing as king. So he, he, he lists Samuel as name recognition. If you won't come after me and Samuel, then so be it. This will happen to you and your oxen as well. Okay, so there's this, there's this movement here. But what I want you to see is that Saul in this moment is following the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has rushed upon him and Saul is being led by the Spirit of God. Saul is being moved by the Spirit of God. And being led by the Spirit of God, the people of Israel respond. In fact, the end of verse seven, we see that the dread of the Lord fell upon all the people and they came out as one man. So the question might be, well, what is the dread? What's the dread that's actually going on here? Well, were they afraid of disobeying Saul and then suffering for it? Were they afraid that the Lord would hold them accountable if they didn't stand up for their countrymen? Were they afraid that if Nahash had his way with Jabesh Gilead, then that would just embolden him to continue his conquest to the rest of Israel? Could have been any of those things. Could have been all those things. But whatever it was, under Saul's spirit-led Leadership in that moment, Israel was now unified and ready for battle. They had a common enemy and they had a unifying mission. That's really important. They had a common enemy and they had a unifying mission. Old Testament scholar, seminary professor Dale Ralph Davis writes, the spirit of God takes a shy, hesitant farmer, one who is hiding at the proclamation of his kingship and empowers him to lead God's people. In really, in what was his first real act as king, Saul is following the spirit, being led by the spirit on what is nothing other than a rescue mission. And we shouldn't think that Saul is doing this according to his own power. 
And it wasn't like any of the judges during this time were doing it according to their own power or their own wisdom or their own strength as well. It was God who was bringing salvation. It was God who was bringing deliverance to his people. Now, friends, I want you to fast forward to the day of Pentecost, right? So Jesus is, has, has risen, ascended. The disciples are 120 are waiting in a room. Why are they in a room? Well, we know that they were fearful. We know they were scared. We know that there were people out to get them. We know that there were all sorts of conspiracies going all around, but they were waiting. They were waiting for the promise of God. And what happens? The spirit of God falls upon them and it's like a mighty rushing wind. Okay, that's the sound of it. A mighty rushing wind. And Saul was filled as the spirit of God rushed upon him and what happened at the day of Pentecost was a unified people given a mission empowered by the spirit of God for a purpose and what was that purpose it was to rescue sinners from the clutches of sin it was to rescue sinners from uh, their enslavement from their death because of their rebellion against God through the gospel of Jesus Christ the spirit of God is empowering them as they would proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that there is forgiveness of sin and that there is eternal life in Christ Jesus, in his perfect life, in his sacrificial death, and in his resurrection from the dead. This is our hope, and this is the mission that the Spirit of God has given to you and to me, has given to the church, that we would speak truth, that we would engage in this mission to rescue sinners from certain death. Only the gospel can free them. Only the message of the cross can rescue those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Friends, whatever difficulties we face, be they relational or situational or spiritual or physical, we need God's spirit to know how to respond. We need God's spirit to move forward. We need his wisdom and his power and his direction. We need his fruit in our lives. And our experience with the spirit is different than it was for Saul, right? For Saul, it came upon him and the spirit would ultimately leave him. But for us who are in Christ, we have the indwelling presence forever of the spirit of God in us. And while Pentecost will not be replaced or replicated, the Spirit of God is still active in our lives. So how do those who are devoted to the true King, to Jesus, stay close to the Spirit? Well, we stay close to the Spirit by staying close to God's Word, both in meditation and in submission. And we ask God's Spirit to move in our lives, to work in our lives, to help us, to lead us and the Spirit gives wisdom, and the Spirit gives direction, and the Spirit gives hope, and the Spirit gives comfort, and the Spirit even gives us the words to say. The Spirit empowers us in our mission, the mission that God has given us. Even as Paul writes in Colossians chapter one, verse 29, that he accomplishes his mission of proclaiming Christ and making disciples, by God's energy, by the power of the Spirit that works mightily within him. Church, we are in a battle. And it's not a physical war, but it is a battle nonetheless. And as believers, we need God's wisdom to know how to respond. 
We need God's wisdom to know how to deal with the adversity that we face in this world. How do we love people who don't love us and who are in rebellion against Jesus Christ? How? How do we do that? How do we reach people with the gospel who question the very existence of truth? How do we engage in social ministry without losing sight of the most important thing? Friends, we'll never arrive at the answers in our own power, in our own wisdom. We need God's spirit to lead us. We need God's spirit to help us know how to respond to the adversity that we face. Friends, as those devoted to King Jesus, we know that none of this happens effectively apart from the leadership of the spirit of God. Finally though, God's people should trust God to work his salvation. God's people should trust God to work his salvation. So the army assembles about 10 miles west of Jabesh Gilead and then they privately communicate with the people of Jabesh Gilead saying, <clears throat> excuse me, by this time tomorrow, by the time the sun's up, it's hot, you will have salvation. Now I'm sure that the people were overjoyed to hear that people had responded to the messengers going out and they were there to fight for them. They didn't know what to expect, but they thought this was great. Now in verse 10, the men of Jabesh Gilead communicate to, communicate to the Ammonites, to King Nahash and the Ammonite army, an ambiguous message. They say, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you. But if you look at that word in the Hebrew, it could be translated, tomorrow we will either surrender to you or we will march out to you. And march out they did. And they defeated the Ammonites. Saul, under his leadership, being led by the Spirit, divides his group up into three different, uh, three different sections and they attack and they chase them off and they destroy the Ammonite army. But it's important to see that the source of the victory isn't simply Saul. Even Saul recognizes, verse 13, and credits the Lord for the deliverance that has come that day. Credits the Lord for the salvation that has come that day. Again, Dale Ralph Davis writes, salvation came not because Israel had a king, but because Israel's king had Yahweh's spirit. Isn't that amazing? That's where salvation comes from. The source of our salvation is God, and we need to trust him to work his salvation. Let's finish the chapter by reading verses 12 through 15. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So Samuel here is calling the people to renew the kingdom. And while there are various opinions on what it means to renew the kingdom, I think it has everything to do with submitting again, with saying this is what we long for, God's will and God's ways. This seems to be a religious ceremony that's happening in Gilgal. That's why the peace offerings are, are being offered. That's why uh, in chapter 10, it was maybe more of a political pronunciation of Saul's kingship, but here maybe more of a religious ceremony. But friends, it all actually points us to the salvation that comes through God. In chapter eight, remember the Israelites wanted a earthly king who would go out and lead them in battle just like the rest of the nations. 
But even then, we saw that God is able to save his people. As the Philistines came against them, God was able to throw them into confusion and to save his people. The Lord is the true king. It is the Lord who works his salvation. Friends, salvation always belongs to the Lord. And that's true in the little things, and that's true in the big things. And that's true in our personal lives, and that's true on a cosmic level as well. And just when things look bleak, when life is not as we wish it were, those who are devoted to King Jesus will trust that he will work his salvation, that he will work his will and his ways, which are always right. And we may not understand them. And sometimes that means that it may not end the way that we wished it would end, but God's will and ways are always right and they're always good. And we may not see that good, but we can trust that he is working good for he's perfect. And in the end, he does make all things right. In this world, victories at times seem fleeting, but the ultimate victory is already secured. It's been secured in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice here in verse 12 that Saul is showing mercy. We began reading in in chapter 10 because I wanted to just emphasize how there were, not everyone was on board with Saul's kingship. There were men who were called worthless men who said, shall this man save us? Is this guy, is this gonna be the guy that's gonna do it? And they brought him no present, right? They disdained Saul. And here at the end of verse 11, or chapter 11, we see that they wanted to bring those men out and they wanted to kill them. But here Saul shows mercy to them. Truth is, Saul couldn't save anyone. But Saul showed mercy to these men, saying no one shall be put to death. Saul can't save anyone, but the Lord can. And we look at how the story ends with Saul and we understand that his kingdom, his kingship was ultimate a failure, but here he is pointing us to the mercy that comes through the true king, through Jesus, the one who has accomplished our ultimate salvation, right? Our great God shows mercy to sinners, to people who question him, who rebel against his authority. As the apostle Paul writes in Titus chapter 3, For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In other words, enemies of God, questioning him. Should we really listen to him? Can he really save us? But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he has poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Saul was ultimately a failure king, but in this moment, God used him to bring victory. God brought salvation through him. And Saul shows us a picture of the mercy that God gives to sinners, to those who would rebel against him, to those who would question his authority. In Christ, in the true king, we have hope and we have life and we have forgiveness of sin forever. Thank God for his mercy to sinners. 
for his mercy to us. Thank God for his grace to rebels. Thank God that he accomplished salvation and offers life to those who trust in him. Let me ask you a question, where are you today? Spiritually speaking, where are you today? Are you in relationship with the one true living God through faith? Have you called upon the name of the Lord for forgiveness of sins and for the hope of eternal life? Have you experienced the salvation that comes only through faith in Jesus Christ, the true King? Or today are you wandering? Or today are you still in rebellion? Or today are you still questioning whether or not God is worth it? Humble yourself. Salvation comes through the Lord and salvation belongs to the Lord. In just a moment, we're gonna have a time of invitation. If you have questions about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how you can know forgiveness of sin and eternal life, then we encourage you to come and talk to us here up front. If you have questions about uh, church membership or baptism or something that I said that you just need more information on, we would love to connect with you. Maybe you just wanna pray. Maybe you wanna come up here and pray. Maybe you want someone to come pray with you. We would love to do that very thing. We believe that God's at work and we believe that God is at work in your life. So what's he doing and how will you respond? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your love. Your mercy is great. Your salvation is holistic. And God, we praise you that even in the difficult moments, you are on your throne and you are good. Thank you that we can trust you with our lives, with everything that we have. Work in this room, we pray right now, in the lives of the people here today, those who are your own and those who are still far from you, we pray that you would work in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand and respond as God leads?